1: In California, it's technically a crime to eat oranges in the bathtub. So, apparently, a century ago, I researched this a little bit, it was believed that the citric acid from oranges could cause an explosion if it was mixed with bath oils. It turns out that's not true. That one is still on the books, huh? That's still on the books. Yeah, I, I can't say that it's ever been prosecuted or will be prosecuted, but it's still on the books.
2: Mike, I have to ask you a personal question.
3: Is it about eating oranges in the bathtub?
2: How did you guess?
3: I just had a feeling. Well, first of all, I couldn't tell you the last time I actually took a bath. But I do like to eat fruit in the shower.
2: Wow. Kidding. Okay, I have another personal question. All right. You're married, right? Yep. Did you live with your wife before you were married? You mean, did we shack up? Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, we did, Uh, but only out of necessity. Both our leases were up, so for a couple of months before the wedding, we did live together. Nosy.
2: Well, it's okay, because I've lived with a boyfriend that I wasn't married to as well. Um, And actually, both of us would have been scofflaws if we lived in Michigan when we were doing that. I'll let Zach Clark of WWJ News Radio's Daily J podcast in Detroit explain.
0: It's illegal in Michigan to, quote, seduce an unmarried woman. So throw Tinder out the window. Sometimes, though, those antiquated laws get repealed.
1: So the state Senate took the latest step to get rid of a kind of outdated crime, voting 29 to 9 to repeal a ban on unmarried men and women living together in a lewd fashion. It's kind
2: of an old-fashioned language here.
0: That voice right there belongs to Lauren Gibbons. Lauren covers the state government for Bridge, Michigan.
2: Now, the Michigan House of Representatives is expected to vote on whether to get rid of the law and its $1,000 fine. And
3: that's the headline that we're looking into, this cohabitation law in Michigan and the bizarre restriction of oranges in the bathtub. They're just some examples of so-called dead crimes across the country.
2: And Joel Johnson, an associate professor of law at Pepperdine University's Caruso School of Law, has become an expert on the topic.
1: I guess I'm fascinated with sort of the the category that is tied mostly to to the changing moral sensibilities, because that's something that is going to inevitably come up again.
2: He wrote the paper Dealing with Dead Crimes, and he joined the show to help us learn more about them.
3: That's Lauren, one of our producers, and I'm your host, Mike Rogers. This is Something Offbeat. We're talking about the so-called dead crimes, right? And this is something in in all the decades I've been in the business. We I've done more stories than I can remember on on these these laws that have just they've been around forever, and for some reason they don't get taken off the books. It's become a real problem, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And 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 first of all, I think you know it's it's worth sort of noting you know, what we mean by dead crimes, right? It's not necessarily just that it's been something that's been on the books for a long time, but but something that has long gone unenforced, right? So something that's on the books still, it's it's long gone unenforced and usually openly violated. So the public is violating it as if it were not a crime and it's not being prosecuted.
3: So why leave it on the books then? Is it that kind of a deal? Well, let's just leave it on there in case we need to bust someone for something. We have that as a backup.
1: Yeah, I mean, that may be part of it. I think I think a lot of it, frankly, is there just isn't sufficient political will to go through, at least for many of these, to go through the vast criminal codes that we have to search for these dead crimes and to take the time to actually repeal them. Actually, Michigan has done a pretty decent job of this in recent years. There's a sort of a recent history of repealing some of these dead crimes. And it looks like this cohabitation statute may be Another one that does get repealed. But yeah, frankly, I think that they're often just forgotten about. And then there are significant implications when that occurs, which we can talk about. There are sort of implications of dead crime being on the book.
3: So you're saying that there are people, a lot of people, apparently, who they look through all the books and they just kind of throw up their hands and say, it's too much. We, just, we, we don't want to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it it could be that. Right. So it could just be think about a legislature, particularly local legislature. So a lot of these end up being city ordinances rather than than state level crimes. And it may just be a lack of resources. They're dealing with the problems of today that are popping up. And and they don't want to expend resources on going through the the criminal codes and thinking about what should be repealed, what should not be repealed, setting up a vote on those issues. It, It just may be a matter of not having enough resources to focus on it.
2: So a lot of times they just leave them alone because they just want to move on, legislators that is, want to move on to things that they can do good with and things that really they believe in as opposed to just undoing laws that don't mean anything anyway and repealing them. So I think that's for the most part why they remain on the books. And some of them still are technically behaviors that are illegal. That's Rachel Clark from the Archives of Michigan. She talked to Zach in Detroit about efforts to get rid of the cohabitation law. He also talked to Lauren Gibbons, a reporter who covered the story. I think especially after abortion, after that national
1: conversation happened, people started looking back at that 1931
2: law. I think a lot of people are concerned that, you know, if circumstances were to change, that could have had a really massive impact on a lot of people in Michigan.
1: They sort of commend Michigan for looking at this cohabitation law. But more generally, it seems like in the last few years, they've started to take a harder look at, especially the, the laws that were sort of tied to moral, changing moral sensibilities, going back and trying to repeal them. How old are some of these laws? These, these go back well into the 1800s, don't they? That's right. Yeah. I mean, one example that pops to mind that I've sort of written about, there there are these bicycle bell ordinances that date back to the 1800s, really a pre-automobile era where bikes were often sort of the the main danger to pedestrians and were often sharing the same roadways and pathways as pedestrians. Um, It was very important maybe to have uh, bells on every single bicycle. And so it was a criminal prohibition not to have bells. But of course, there are changes in technology have sort of changed that where now we have bike lanes or we have sort of just a a bike path where only bikes are on it. And, and, And perhaps in those situations, you don't need a bell, yet we still have these laws from the 1800s in many places requiring a bicycle bell and imposing, at least in theory, criminal punishment for a violation.
3: So some of these laws, it sounds like very likely that when they were put on the books, they made sense at the time.
1: That's right. Yeah. And so I sort of tend to think of the the categories in in two broad strokes, at least least in terms of the dead crimes that are most important. So one may just be changing sort of moral sensibilities in the society or in the public, right? So um, that could be like fornication or cohabitation or adultery. Um, We still have some states where fornication and cohabitation are still in the books, Michigan being one with cohabitation. And it, adultery is actually still in the books in a number of states, which may suggest that it's not fully a, a dead crime. Maybe maybe folks still think that sh- does rise to the level of a criminal offense.
3: Clearly, that's got to be where that comes from, because back in the day, shacking up, for lack of a better phrase, that was just not acceptable.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the law was enacted in, in 1931. So in, in that time period, I, I think it's fair to say that the dominant view was that sort of shacking up or unmarried cohabitation, you know, wasn't just immoral as a, in terms of like private or religious views, but it was sufficiently immoral to rise to the level of being a criminal offense. And that's sort of the distinction, right? So nowadays there may be folks who think on, on moral, private moral grounds that that's something that shouldn't be done, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean they think it should be a public sort of criminal law that anyone who's doing that is a criminal subject to either a criminal fine or imprisonment.
2: Some of these laws remind me of this rule they had at my high school that prohibited wearing hats inside. I hated it. And one really cold day, I just decided to keep my hat on. And nearly immediately, I ended up with a Saturday detention. You
3: rebel. We had a rule (laughs) in high school that you couldn't leave school grounds for any reason because we were in kind of a sketchy neighborhood. But you know how it was. As teenagers, you feel invincible. And so... One day, a couple of friends and I walked to a nearby convenience store during lunch.
2: And what happened?
3: Well, we got mugged. So, (gasps) fine. Maybe some rules are there for a reason.
2: I know you've also reported on some strange laws. Any favorites?
3: I have done stories on jaywalking laws, laws against spitting on the sidewalk, uh, no hats in movie theaters. You probably wouldn't have enjoyed that one. Did you know it's against the law to throw snowballs in the city of Provo, Utah? And in Alabama, it's against the law to wear a fake mustache in church. But Joel also had some good examples, too.
1: I've seen a city ordinance that makes it a crime to provide a massage service to someone of the opposite sex. I've seen, you know, there are still still some Sunday laws on the books that aren't enforced. Uh, Sunday laws are, are basically criminal prohibitions on certain behaviors uh, taking place on Sunday. I've seen bans on playing card games or selling used cars, and those aren't prosecuted. Uh, In Texas, we used to call those blue laws. And Lauren,
3: you've actually been looking into this, too. What did you learn?
2: Yeah, I've been researching. My first fact is from Rachel Clark in Michigan. She said that Sunday laws are also called blue laws, like you mentioned, probably because they were written on blue paper. My second is that these laws originated in England, and they were brought here by colonists to protect the Christian Sabbath. That's according to Cornell Law School. Do
3: you have any idea how many states still have them on the books?
2: Well, based on the World Population Review data that I found, it seems that only 20 states don't have any type of Sunday laws or blue laws. For example, Texas, where you live, still has some restrictions on alcohol sales on Sundays, and in Illinois, where I live, uh, we still have restrictions on vehicle sales.
3: So you could go out and buy condoms on a Sunday, but not a car. (laughs) It's good to know. But back to Joel. Listen closely, because some of these dead crimes could impact people all over the country.
1: There's also still some bans in some places on using profanity in public. And so all of those are sort of examples of changing moral sentiments over time. But other crimes have resulted from changes in technology. So one is sort of the or changes in need in light of new technology. So one is that bicycle bell example ordinance I gave. But another example, which is sort of fun to think about, is there's a New York City ordinance that prohibits using a recording device in any place of public performance. And that probably served an important purpose many years ago, many decades ago when it was passed. Perhaps you could you could think to protect musical performers or artists from having their work recorded and then being sold in pirated forms on the black market. But right in our era of smartphones, where every tourist has an iPhone, in Central Park and Times Square, where there are street performers, uh, this ordinance is being violated hundreds of times a day. But of course, no one's being prosecuted for this. So that's another example where technology has sort of shifted the significance of the behavior that's being regulated.
3: You mentioned moral sensibilities. Are there some people who want some of these laws to stay on the books? And who are they? Why do they want them to stay?
2: A quick side note. In Michigan, nine Republicans did actually want to keep the cohabitation law on the books, including Senator Ed McBroom of Western Upper Peninsula
3: government exists to provide for the general welfare by protecting people from evil and danger and by promoting the common good. The repeal of this law is not a promotion of the common good. Cohabitation has been consistently shown to decrease the resilience and permanence of marriage and to decrease the potential that marriage happens at all. Meanwhile, marriage has been consistently shown to be the gold standard by which a stable society is maintained. The law hasn't been enforced, so supporters say it was time to take it off the books. Opponents claim it will allow people to cheat on their taxes by claiming someone as
1: a dependent. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, first, before it sort of intentionally wanting them to stay, I think they're, it's worth noting that they can be significantly powerful for the government. So, right, so it, it's sort of often assumed when you see a list of these old laws on the Internet or something that these are harmless and they're just funny, like the oranges in the bathtub example, but the continued existence of some of these really can have significant consequences. So for starters, just the fact that these laws are on the books means that they could, in theory, at least serve as the basis for a prosecution. Um, and, and if that were to occur, and when it does occur, it feels very arbitrary and unfair to those who are prosecuted, right? Because there's so many other people who are engaging in the same conduct but are not being prosecuted. And does that happen? A couple examples of this. In the late 90s, a prosecutor in Idaho kind of went on a moral crusade and decided to charge eight pregnant high school girls and their boyfriends with criminal fornication. And that was a shock and a surprise to them and to the community. Similarly, in 2004, a Virginia man was prosecuted under a state adultery statute that had long gone unenforced. But in that particular case, it was was used as the basis of prosecution. But even short of that, even if there's no prosecution, because a lot of these, there really is not a prosecution, the continued existence of the crimes allows police, uh, at least some of these crimes, it allows police to rely on them as a pretext to justify arrests that are then can be accompanied by searches of the person. And those searches can sometimes turn up evidence of more serious and more legitimate crimes. And I actually think this is the more. Pernicious way in which these dead crimes can be used um, and sort of their their value to the government. This is kind of like a broken taillight kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, even even worse than that because I think with a broken taillight, at least there's some sense that you know that that is a violation, right? Um, so to take the bicycle bell ordinance, many people riding a bike don't know that where they are riding, it is required to have a bell on the bicycle. There's this case from Illinois where where an officer. Arrested a woman for riding a bicycle without a bell, and that was a, a violation of the city ordinance. And the officer actually admitted in the course of the litigation that, that his real reason for stopping this woman was that he had a hunch that she was a prostitute. He didn't have any evidence of that, but he had this hunch. Um, so he used the, the bicycle bell ordinance violation as sort of a pretext to arrest her. But it, because it's still on the books, it gives the officer a ton of investigatory power. Is this what you
3: mean when you say that some of these laws can actually undermine the rule of law?
1: Yeah, so that's part of it, yes. The American legal system, our legal system, is based on this notion, right, of the rule of law. And on a, on a very basic level, that's essentially a promise that we will be governed by clearly articulated laws rather than arbitrary decisions by government actors, right? It's sometimes said, rule by law, not rule by king. The fact that police can use these crimes as proxies or pretexts for their investigative work that further undermines the rule of law because it creates a mismatch between which of the laws on the books will actually be prosecuted and which will be used to initiate investigative encounters. And so it starts to to look less like rule by law and more like rule by cop or you know rule by king, so to speak. Should our legal codes change with the times? I mean, I think in in a democracy, that sh- that's generally the idea, right, that, that, that the, the legislature should be sort of, that the code should reflect current or at least recent sensibilities about what should rise to the level of a criminal offense. The fact that it's hard to get these laws repealed makes that difficult, right? Because legislatures, whether local level, state level, even federal, are constantly adding new crimes to the books, but there's not this concerted effort to remove them. I actually sort of argue in in some of my research and my writing that courts should step in and play a bigger role, a more active role in dealing with dead crimes when opportunities arise.
3: Johnson explained how a practice that has fallen out of use could help courts deal with some of these dead crimes.
1: There's an old judicial doctrine called desuetude, or sometimes it's pronounced desuetude, that that dates back to Roman times. So it's very old. And under that doctrine, the idea is that a court can invalidate a law on the ground that it's long been unenforced in the face of open disregard by the public. So in other words, it's fallen into disuse or it's a dead crime. And in America, several state courts actually used to recognize this doctrine and apply it in the 1800s, but it fell out of favor um, in the late 1800s. And now only West Virginia recognizes the doctrine. And so I think at least that, that more courts should embrace this doctrine. And the effect of that, right, would be that the court if presented with, say, an unfair prosecution under one of these old laws. It could invalidate the old law, but it would do so in a way that leaves open the possibility that that the current legislature could reenact it if so desired.
3: Where do you think we'll be 40 or 50 years from now?
1: What I think is fascinating is there will probably be a whole nother category of laws that we couldn't predict that in forty to fifty years we'll then be considered dead crimes because of say changes in technology or sort of movements and moral sentiment.
3: Well listen, you've got a, a great test case coming up. I want you to go home tonight, get in the bathtub and start eating oranges. <laughs> My
1: toddler loves oranges and so I've been I've realized like she's probably come close to violating this this criminal law here in California.
3: i Mike Rogers. Thanks so much for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake. Audio editing by Chris Blake. And original music by Myron Kaplan. And editorial support from Cooper Mall. Now if you'd like to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, we'd love to hear about it. Send it to us at something offbeat at Odyssey. That's A U D A C Y.com.